0: You're listening to Q&A Over Coffee. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for obtaining accounting, tax, or financial advice from a professional accountant.
1: Hello and welcome to Olson Thielen's Q&A Over Coffee podcast. A quick introduction, also in the room we have the host you never hear, Valerie Arndt. And Val, you got some exciting news about our podcast. Do you want to update our listeners?
0: Thanks, Adam, and thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Excited to, to be here in the room today. We also have an event coming up we want to let you know about through Enterprise Minnesota, which is a great organization that we're involved with, a lot of our clients are involved with. Uh, they have the State of Manufacturing Results event on November 9th in Minneapolis. So we'll be a sponsor of that. We hope to see you there. You can catch a live version of our podcast there at the event. Adam's going to be there. I'll be there. Some of the other hosts um, and guests that you have heard on this podcast. Uh, so if you want to talk to us a little bit about what you're seeing in the the industry as a manufacturer, uh, come and see us at the event.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be exciting. Uh, I can't wait. This will be a little bit nerve-wracking to do it live in a you know live audience format, but I'm, uh, I'm excited and ready for it. And I think uh, it'll be fun to uh, to see a lot of our manufacturing clients in person, hear what you guys have going on, what's uh, facing your business in, as far as challenges go, um, and you know maybe even talk through some solutions to those. So it'll be fun. Well,
2: welcome, listeners, back into the Olson Thielen Podcast Coffee Cafe. Uh, I'm Tom Pesch, and today we have Charlie Sparks with us. Charlie is one of our directors in the tax practice. Hi Charlie, can you say hello? How you doing? Hi Tom,
1: thanks for having me.
2: You're welcome. And uh, before we start, how do you like your coffee? Do you want to tell us? Uh,
1: I just kind of drink mine straight, black. I don't, uh, none of the razzle-dazzle, just uh, take it down and on and to the next one.
2: On to the next one. No mess, no fuss. So today, so we're, we're really kind of excited. It's autumn of the year, and we're excited because the, the truth is, is that after Labor Day, uh, tax planning, we're going to take... Today, we're gonna talk about tax planning, tax strategies for the remainder of 23, and for potentially into 24. Charlie works in the closely held business space. He works with us on the hospitality clients. He works with us in construction. He works with us in some professional services. He handles some of the healthcare. Uh, What else, what other kind of business? Uh,
1: Manufacturing quite a bit. And the manufacturing space. mm
2: -hmm. So he's working on some good, robust clients and what, you tell me, would you agree that this fall-autumn season is kind of the cat's meow of tax planning?
1: Yeah, actually, I'll steal a quote that I've heard you say many times over the years that you know November and December are the most important months of the year. And um, for what reason? You know, for strategic purposes, for getting out in front of things, um... You know, we often have clients come to us in March and say, what can I do to lower my tax bill? And a lot of times by then it's a little too late. So the more you can talk to us throughout the year and especially this time of year, um, you know, it's really beneficial to both us and to the client. You know, it helps, um, you know, strengthen communication. We really like to avoid surprises.
2: Absolutely. So if
1: you are going to have a big check to write when April rolls around, uh, most people would rather know several months in advance. And, and personally as a practitioner this is also the most fun time of the year for me so
2: well I, I think it's fun time of the year but I, I think it's the time of the year when you can do lawful things to reduce taxes. we're going to talk about what those are in a minute um but I always tell clients prospects and I remind existing clients that you know my commitment to the clients and as a practice and you have followed in this path and you're kind of dr- dr- uh, drawing your own path is that we want to know where they stand for taxes by New Year's eve Uh-huh. Because that makes the filing season, and rarely do we have a lot of clients come to us in March. But there are some without having talked to them in the autumn. But then that makes the filing season kind of less problematic because we kind of know what's going to happen, and we get a chance to do some of that work in the autumn, uh, depreciation updates, uh, payroll bonuses, what you know, whatever we whatever we're yep. working on. Okay, so I would, you and I would agree that this tax planning time is really unique. Mm-hmm. All right. So, with that being said, let's talk a little bit about some of the details. So, as we come up on the end of 23, uh, we've got basically November, December left, rounded somewhat. So, 60 good days. So, what are, what uh, typically when you're working with clients, Charlie, what are you what are you working on for the end of 23?
1: Yeah. Well, this year's a little, I guess, unique um, in the sense that. This is probably the first year in many years we haven't had several sweeping changes to the tax law. Um, it has helped make our jobs a little easier. You know, Last year we were dealing with the uh, capitalization of research and experimental expenses under Section 174. Uh, prior to that we had how many COVID-related tax acts. Uh, prior to that we were getting our hands around the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. So for the first year in a while, we've kind of been able to plan a little more effectively because we've we've known what's coming. Um, you know, the, the headlining change is probably um, the drop in bonus depreciation from 100% to 80% and then um, subsequent 20% phase outs over a five-year period. Um, so, you know, that that's been helpful from a planning perspective for us. Um, you know some of the things we're talking to clients about doing. Um, you know, there's there's kind of the the obvious ones for for wage earners. You know, maximizing your your 401k deferrals, your HSAs, your FSAs, um, you know, whatever. Um, your dependent care accounts, all that pre-tax uh, savings. Those are kind of the obvious ones. And then you know your your business taxpayers. It's you know, do you have any equipment needs? Um, that would make sense to put into service this year, especially with the decline in bonus depreciation that we're seeing. Uh, If you're a cash basis taxpayer, uh, maybe looking at at paying down all your short-term debt over the next couple months. Um, So, you know, again, and that ties back to the sooner you can talk to us, um, talk with your advisors, uh, the more you can plan for this stuff and not be scrambling at the last minute.
2: Yeah, there's no doubt that... uh you can get ahead of this stuff it it makes it so much easier now you've been working on the tax practice over for about how long
1: uh at ot about four years overall about 10 years about
2: 10 years so you've seen you got a CPA license you're Mm -hmm. all in so um you've gotten a lot of experience with us we have a a real robust firm um so so as we turn the corner let's just talk for a second let's skip out a couple years Give me a comment or two about what's coming with the expiration of the Trump tax cuts. Because it's the timing is coming, uh-huh. and boy, how time rolls on. What's coming on the 20, was it 2025? Yeah,
1: so at, so at December 31st, 2025, a number of the, I guess, yeah, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, or as you referred to it, the Trump tax law, um, a lot of those changes are set to expire. Uh, Some of the highlights would be the estate tax exemption. Um, That's, you know, in the neighborhood of $12 million right now. That's set to about cut in half um, when that time rolls around. So, you know, gifting and other estate planning measures will be critical over the next couple years. Um, Get in touch with both your CPA and your estate attorney because estate attorneys are going to be crazy busy over the next couple years. Um, so if you don't have a relationship locked in there, um, that will be tough to find someone in that market. And we
2: could help somebody find that if yep. we needed. Yep. Yep. We
1: have a lot of referral sources. I know that, that Adam
2: area. Adam Thalen has been just super busy in the state area, and and all of us in the tax practice have recognized that. Okay, so the estate exemption is moving down.
1: Yep. Um, qualified business income deduction, which is the basically the twenty percent deduction on any pass through income that you have, uh, subject to certain limitations. Um, uh, which has been a huge saver for kind of our small mid-market businesses, um, that is set to expire. So you know, it it's almost an additional twenty percent tack on back to your income. Um, that business owners have been seeing the luxury of over the last handful of years.
2: Only applicable to the pass-throughs, though, right? Correct. Yep. Yep. Which is, um, which the purpose of that hmm. was to equate that pass-through tax with the C corp tax.
1: Yep, exactly. Yeah, the, uh, the, the Trump law essentially lowered the corporate tax rate from a maximum of 35% to a flat 21%. So the idea was to more or less get pass-through owners on similar footing uh, to those corporate businesses. I always find
2: it interesting to know why things are the way they are. In our training courses that we do, either at the Minnesota Society or the AICPA, they oftentimes add, uh, explain to us why it's oftentimes interesting to see where the Congress is going. This is a perfect example. Because of the tax rate change in the C-Corps, they had to make parity with the S-Corps. I thought that was really when that law came down. And it's interesting to note that they put a sunset on these provisions Uh because of the the Congressional budget scoring. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what about state taxes?
1: Yeah, so another one of the highlights of that Trump tax law was the <clears throat> maximum ten thousand dollars state and local tax deduction, so that's your income taxes, your real estate taxes, um, personal property taxes. So that really was a a big kind of kick in the pants to a lot of um, high tax states and those residents. Um, you know, including a lot of our Minnesota resident clients. Um, you know, Minnesota having a top tax rate of close to ten percent. Um, losing the ability to deduct most of those state income taxes on your federal side was a big loss for a lot of high-income earners.
2: So, so just to understand that, on your personal tax return, there's a, what they call a Schedule A. And in that Schedule A is a section to deduct taxes, real estate, withholding, uh, auto licenses. But that's capped out at 10000 Right. Which is not a lot in the state of Minnesota. Nope. it mean, doesn't take own, much to hit that. If you that own a home, hand. it's, you know, automatic 3-4. Mm-hmm. Withholding is automatic 3-4, and pretty soon you're there. Um, so what did the states do to work around that?
1: Yeah, so numerous states, Minnesota included, um, have enacted what they're calling a PTE tax, a pass-through entity tax. Um, and what that is, um, if, if you own an S-corp, for example... And you or any pass-through. Any pass-through, yep. And you have Minnesota source income from that pass-through, you can make an election at that business level to pay income tax at the business level. And and what that does is essentially shift that tax burden from previously being paid by the individual to being paid at the business level. And, and this
2: is just state tax. Right. Correct. Not federal. Okay, there's a distinction because we don't want our listeners to get confused. Yeah, so it's yeah. a state tax, okay. Yep,
1: pass-throughs in most cases aren't paying federal tax, um, barring certain exceptions. But, yeah, so so if I'm a Minnesota pass-through business owner, historically uh, what happens is I get a K-1 from that, that business and I pay that tax to Minnesota at the individual level personally. Now, if that tax was... Upwards of ten thousand dollars. All of a sudden, I'm not getting a federal benefit for that tax. So now, if I pay that at the business level, I can deduct that on the federal level on that business, and it essentially is a workaround to that um, state tax deduction limit on your federal Schedule A.
2: And it reduces your federal income. Yep, which exactly. Reduces your federal tax.
1: Yep. So you know, it, it's for for top earners can be a Upwards of a thirty percent benefit. What's not to love? Um, yeah, exactly. So it was, and you know, it's uh, it was enacted by the states in response to the uh, federal law changes. But the IRS has more or less signed off on it and said, "Yeah, this is a perfectly, perfectly legal uh, maneuver," and um, it has been a huge, huge benefit to a lot of taxpayers.
2: So uh, my recollection is that um, when we have like. I've got a handful of clients that do business in multiple states. We kind of got to go through the list. In one case, it was like 32 states. You got to go through and figure out where the pass-throughs are applicable. And by and large, most of them have the pass-throughs. Uh, some states don't have income tax, so that doesn't apply. But you kind of got to be careful. If, if so, if our listeners are thinking, well, I do business in 10 states, and maybe you know eight of them have a pass-through tax, and this this pass-through payment. Would reduce that pass-through tax.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, it would it would reduce your pass-through federal income, which, by way of doing that, reduces your personal federal income tax. So you know, it's it's a few um, stops to go through to get there. But basically, the long and short of it is shifting that business's tax liability from the individual to the business, businesses can don't have a $10,000 cap on state and local taxes while individuals do. So it puts
2: the burden back up on the business. Okay. Yep. That's cool. That I think, I, I just had a client in this morning, and I told him, I said, probably some of the best Minnesota legislation we've seen in a long time, given the um, fairly aggressive nature of Minnesota tax
1: policy. Yeah, it's not often we get taxpayer-friendly legislation out of Minnesota, but this, this, this was, was it. This yep. was one of
2: Okay, so any other ideas on uh, reductions? Check withholdings, bonus appreciation, tax basis, taxpayers, 401Ks, uh, QBI, pay the PTE, check the estate. I don't know.
1: Yeah, I that's mean, Kind I... of
2: a laundry list. There's more, but that's kind of the big the big items. Yep. And And so I would just remind our listeners that sometimes the tax planning is about- reducing tax, it's also sometimes about the cash flow management. So one of the things we talked about today with this client was they wanted to make sure they had enough paid in. Uh, they're anticipating they're going to hold them probably in the spring, but they want to make sure they don't get a tax penalty. And I'll just jump in and say to those taxpayers that haven't made their payments, their estimated tax payments timely, part of this tax planning season will, it, will help them avoid the higher interest cost, higher underpayment penalty that's coming with higher interest rates. So one of our previous podcast uh, hosts, Greg Nelson and I were talking about this. We're only two doors down. We said, you know, a lot of the taxpayers may be surprised this year if they haven't made their payments because of the underpayment penalty is going to be higher because of higher interest rates. Yep. Now's the time to check that. And so this guy was taking very feverish notes, you know, and I wouldn't be surprised if he's making payments like you know, next week.
1: Yep. Yeah. And and what you're getting at is, you know, most of us as individuals and as employees, you know, we get a paycheck every couple of weeks and there's taxes withheld from it. And we don't really have to think much, right? We, we file a return in January, February and kind of even things out there. But yeah, for your business owners or if you have sources of income that don't have that typical withholding, um, so pass through businesses being the most common one. Um, high amounts of investment income. Uh, maybe you have retirement income that you don't withhold on. You know, you need to pay quarterly estimates to avoid interest and penalties. And like you were getting at Tom, in this rising interest rate environment, uh, those penalties are going to hurt that much more. Yeah, know, be, historically be. we've said you know the IRS is kind of a cheap lender, and a lot of people, you know, there was a, a little more of a relaxed attitude towards underpayment penalties and interest, but um as you mentioned, I think in in this, you know, at current rates we're gonna see a lot lot bigger penalties.
2: There previously were a lot of uh cheap lenders yep. until uh, recent months and IRS was in that barrel, but now interest rates are different. Uh-huh. okay now let me ask you a question. So you know, oftentimes a lot of our taxpayers are very active. And our practice has a lot of people that are always doing deals and stuff. So when when somebody comes in, like I've got right now, I've got a client that's um, got some real estate pending. Um, we've got one of the clients is going to um, potentially sell the business. We've got another guy doing an acquisition. So if somebody is going to be realizing significant taxable income or an event in the fall of this year, and in two cases, they're trying to get these deals closed by the end of the year. What are the buttons we should have them be pushing? or what should we be talking about when we have an event that has significant taxable income?
1: Yeah, yeah, there's a few things. Um, you know with, with with business owners who are selling their business, um, you know it's it's obviously critical to talk to your advisors ahead of time. your accountant, your attorney, financial advisors. Um, one of the big thing we see with our businesses that sell is the concept of an asset sale versus a stock sale. Um, you know, buyers are typically incentivized to do an asset sale. Um, the main reason being if you have depreciable assets, um, they can take, uh, initial year depreciation pretty heavily on those. Um, you might be able to write down some inventory depending on how that was valued, um, Sellers, on the other hand, are typically incentivized to do a stock sale, uh, the main reason being that they would receive preferred capital gains treatment on that sale, Yep. Uh, typically at a lower rate than ordinary income. Um, so it, it's important to talk to your advisors, and probably we'll have to talk to the other side about um, kind of how to structure those deals. And... Typically, there's ways we can meet in the middle. Um, there's something called a 338H10 election, which is probably the closest thing to a best of both worlds treatment. It kind of acts as a, um, you know, a stock sale for legal purposes, but a asset sale for tax purposes. Um, but you can allocate the sales price in a way that, if both parties can agree upon, can kind of benefit both sides. So certain assets. That you sell will generate ordinary income. Certain assets will give you that capital gains rate. Um, so, getting both sides to agree on those things. Um,
2: we actually will have two. I have there. two 330 two H10s going right now.
1: Okay.
2: A, and because they're in the healthcare space, mm-hmm. so it's not uncommon if you buy a clinic that has a bunch of contracts with a bunch of payers, you don't want to disturb those. So, you just buy the stock of that clinic. And then you treat it as a stock sale for legal, but it's an asset purchase for tax. Works really well. Then you don't got to repaper all the contracts. It yep. is a great workaround. Uh, there's a good reputable law firm in town that knows how to do that, and we work very closely with mm-hmm. them in the Vision Advisors that I'm part of. Uh, okay, so the three thirty H ten asset sales mm-hmm. potentially taxpayers would consider an installment sale.
1: Yep. Yeah. So an installment sale. Um, can benefit both parties in that it allows the buyer to retain some cash in the short term. So if it's a five million dollar sale, maybe rather than having to shell out five million dollars up front, they can pay a million a year plus interest over a five year period or any any structure that both sides can agree on. Um, a, a big one is, you know, harvesting losses. Um, if you have a big sale, and are going to recognize a large capital gain, maybe talk to your financial advisor and say, do I have any losers in my portfolio that we can let go of that we can uh, kind of help shield some of this tax loss? Because you can always go back into them 30 days later. Yep, yep. that's It's
2: become a very popular topic uh, with the financial advisors right now is that when there's losers on the table that last week of December, they say, yeah, okay, you like the stock, great, sell it out, take the loss. Uh, cover other d- uh, gains, short term distributions from mutual funds, and then go back into it in January. And that, that I've seen more and more and more of that going on. Uh, and then lastly, the, the PTE, you, if you have a huge gain, and we just did this, Sarah Johnson and I, on a taxpayer uh, over in Eden Prairie. Well, how does, that, how does that work?
1: Yeah, so you can make a PTE payment based on the amount of gain that you're going to recognize on your business. Um, So, you know, if I have an S-corporation that I'm selling for $5 million, um, I can pay about $500,000 of PTE tax, you know, roughly 10%. And rather than seeing that large bill on my personal return, again, I pay it um, at the corporate level and I shave about $500,000 off my income, um, which otherwise would have been non-deductible at the personal level due to that $10,000 limitation. So yeah, the PTE applies to ordinary income and uh, you know capital gains that are derived in the course of business.
2: So a $500,000 PT might save at 30 percent. let's see, quick math, three times five, 150k federal yep. tax. That's real money.
1: Yep, yeah, and it, I mean it's a pure, you know it, it's, it's not a it's not a timing thing. it's it's just uh, a law change that essentially put that much in our pockets.
2: It's a big deal. And then, lastly, one of the things that when we have a big event, and then like the toward the end of the year, is to make sure that the structure of those transactions has enough cash to pay the tax that's due in the current year. It took me about till mid-career, which was a ways ago, until the, to figure out that you got to <laughs> be able to plan for the cash flow on the current year taxes, or you're kind of you're kind of missing the bullet because you know the taxpayers would show up in February. Well, we owe you know four hundred k, but we only got two hundred down. Well, how does that work? And it doesn't really work very well.
1: Yep. Yeah, and that and that goes back to the whole you know talk to your advisors before the end of the year, avoid surprises, um, budget for tax needs, and be ready to write that check.
2: All right. One Um, last advanced concept that I've been using of late is deferred compensation. So you have somebody who's a senior person in a professional firm and they want to get out or um, yeah, they want to exit. And what you do is you um, structure the sale. maybe you do half of it as a asset sale and you do half of it as deferred compensation. So then what you do is you present value that deferred compensation into the current year. And then what happens is that they're already over the social security limit, which is about 150. For 2023, Mm -hmm. roughly rounded. And so the payment stream that goes on either 5 or 10 years or whatever you agree on to be paid out over time avoids the Social Security and Medicare. And what a charm that works on the cash flow because you've effectively avoided the Social Security and Medicare. And if you have a $500,000 deferred comp plan and your tax is... 15%, that's $75,000 of payroll tax saved by the seller by accelerating the deferred compensation. So that is a really interesting method to break apart the structure of this taxable event that comes in the autumn of the year.
1: Yep. Yeah. We see that pretty common, as you know, Tom, in our professional services world. Um, You know, say a medical practice, you have one guy coming in, one going out, um, that yeah, that's a very tax efficient and often cash flow efficient way um, to kind of benefit all parties.
2: I've done that a couple times, and boy, I just I just think that's just a, just the cat's meow. He um, so so talk to me a little bit about um, this was the second year of the R and D credit. So there's two topics around R and D that IRS was toying with last year. One of them, I believe, was the section 174 required amortization, yep. and one of them was the R&D credit. Can you give us a couple of quick comments about how those two work independently and just what's going on there? Yeah. Because so, it was new in 23 that the taxpayers had to deal with it. In 22, yeah. 22.
1: So the, so, so the R&D credit itself has been around quite a while, actually. Um, a popular credit with manufacturers, uh, life sciences, uh, bar restaurants, um, any any type of business where you're doing scientific research and experimentation, um, basically it's a government incentive to promote innovation and specifically domestic innovation. So the credit itself has been around um, for quite a while now, and and those credits can be significant um, depending on the size and structure of your business. Um, the other item you and it, touched the, on... the credit
2: on that, so it's it's a percentage of the qualified expenses. Yep. And my recollection is that there are other people that do the credit calcs, but we think we know it's about, what, 17%-ish or so?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, depending on various factors. So
2: if you had $100,000 in tinkering expenses mm-hmm. and you had, a, just for a discussion, a $17,000 credit, that 17, 17% credit, that's 17000 that gets treated as withholding on your personal return if it's a pass through it passes out to you personally.
1: Yep, yeah, it's a direct reduction of your tax. So it's not a deduction, it's a credit, which
2: and dollar
1: at, for dollar reduces your tax. And
2: as we know from past history, credits are very, very valuable.
1: Yep, yes, yeah. Um, the other item you were, you were uh, alluding to is um, Section 174, the required capitalization of research and experimental expenditures. Um, so that provision actually dates back to... The beginning of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. So back in December of 2017, we passed this Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Um, there's a lot of taxpayer-friendly provisions. Um, some of them we've touched on, qualified business income deduction, uh, lowering of maximum tax rates, um, other, you know, other items that, for the most part, um, were taxpayer-friendly. Well, when Congress passes tax law, they go through a process called budget reconciliation. And long story short, what that essentially means is okay, you have all these areas where you're saving taxpayer money. Where are we going to make this up? Where are we going to collect extra tax? Well, they put in this Section 174 capitalization requirement, um, which actually wasn't set to go into effect until 1 1 of 2022. So that's why it was it was new last year, but it wasn't necessarily a new law, but it was new for us in practice.
2: Implementation.
1: Yep, implementation. And, and so what that was telling us was, you know, previously when you have research and experimental expenditures, those are just an ordinary allowable deduction, um, fully expensed in the year incurred. Now what they're saying is if you have these research and experimental expenditures you are actually required to capitalize and amortize them over a five-year period. So, you know, it, it's a timing difference, but it did put a lot of companies in a cash crunch. Um, and, and one point of clarification that I think a lot of people get confused on is that technically these are, expenses are not exactly the same as what's eligible for the credit. Um, Section 174 actually has a slightly wider reach than Section 41, which is what governs the credit. Um, so, you know, if you have a million dollars of expenses that are eligible for R&D credit, you might have $1.2 million of capitalizable expenses. Um, you know, it's the type of thing you don't really know until you take a deep dive, you know, into your, your income statement and kind of analyze what your expenses are. But, you know, th- this is a, a provision that while it does you know, theoretically even out over a five-year period, a lot of our, our clients were kind of put into a little bit of a crunch uh, to pay their tax bill.
2: And I know that you and I worked on a client together and we did a little five-year simple spreadsheet. And over time, um, the credit proved to be very valuable, but you mm-hmm. just have to kind of be patient.
1: Yep. A, a lot of people have come to us and said, you know, sh- does it? should I forgo the R&D credit because I'm going to... You have to capitalize all the expenses. And we say, well, first of all, those are separate concepts. So just because you forego the credit doesn't mean you don't have to capitalize the expenses. And the difference between the credit and those expenses is that the credit is a permanent benefit. So if you decide to forego an R&D credit where you're eligible, you are permanently passing on tax savings. Whereas when you have to capitalize these expenses under 174, that's just a temporary hit that you have to take. So, you know, yeah, if you, if you really put it on paper and, and look at the dollar impact, um, you're, you're generally not going to want to forego an R&D credit that you're eligible for.
2: Again, like we said, credits are very valuable. Mm-hmm. Okay, so kind of the last topic, uh, bracket management. And as we know uh, from the tax practice from from tax planning, tax planning can be multi-year, especially for the retirees. But in the current year, twenty three, twenty four. so bracket, describe just briefly, because we're almost out of time, what does bracket management kind of mean?
1: Yeah, bracket management is kind of the idea of smoothing your income over, over multi-year periods to uh, maximize, or I should say minimize, how much you'll pay, maximize your after-tax um, income. You know, a lot of times it's so easy to focus on all right, I want to drive down my income this year as much as possible. Well, you know, if you're only in a a twelve percent marginal bracket this year, you might actually want to take some income into this period that would otherwise be paid, otherwise be taxed next year at maybe thirty seven percent. So, you know, the 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 crux of what we do is kind of the idea of time value of money, and we're we're typically trying to save tax dollars now because. You know, if it's dollar for dollar, tax savings today is more valuable than tax saved tomorrow. But, you know, tax saved at 12% today is not as valuable as tax saved at 37% tomorrow. So, you know, that's something to consider there. And then, you know, coming up on 2024, it's an election year. Um, Tax laws, you know, become increasingly um, a big part of, you know, the kind of political uh tug of war that we're seeing. So, you know, with 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 tax laws set or the Trump tax law set to expire at twelve thirty one twenty five, um, you know, there's a good chance we see some new legislation, uh, maybe some extending of current provisions um that have been fairly taxpayer friendly. So the, you know there's a lot of unpredictability.
2: And it's probably and, not too much to say that there's a lot at stake.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I always tell clients I'm not in the business of predicting what politicians will do, and we can only act on current information that we have. But if I were to guess, you know, it, it seems more likely that tax rates will go up in the future than go down.
2: Especially with um, federal spending. Yeah. We've got multiple... Um, requests for different parts of the world. There's a lot of stuff currently mm. in the southern border. There's a lot of money that the Congress is trying to find a way to find and likely to come from taxes. Okay. All right. So I think that's about all the time we're going to we're going to have for today. The, the, these are just great, great ideas, Charlie, that yep. you've brought to us about tax planning. Um, you know, it's an important time of the year. I'll just say that again kind of in sum. And uh, it's important that our listeners, you know, find a way to call their practitioner or seek advice about what they can do to still change their taxes. I mean Hulson Thielen, we'd love to help you help them um, manage their taxes down. There's a lot of things we can do. And you know, I've I've said over the years, I'm almost certain that if you put us in a room with some taxpayers, entrepreneurs, I'm certain we can move their taxes down. Yep. on a reasonable basis. So I'm, I'm confident that that still exists. There's a lot going on in the tax area. Yep. Agreed. Okay. Hey, one last comment. You're on um, a Mankato State, a Minnesota State graduate, right? I am, yep. Yeah, you and I together. Yep. But I think as somebody pointed out, there was a long time between <laughs> us.
1: <laughs> yeah, just so, a few
2: years. Just a few years. Okay, so Charlie, thanks for coming in. It's so good to see you again, and we look forward to working with you more on on tax topics.
1: All right, thanks a lot, Tom. All right.
0: Check out all of our Q&A over coffee episodes on the Olsen Thielen website. This is also the place you can go to be notified of any new episodes and submit your suggestions for future topics. You can also find all of our podcast episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon. Be sure to follow Olson Thielen on LinkedIn. Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.